0: Now, Eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man.
1: Well, we're in our second message of the uh, the series that we've started on 1 uh, Samuel. And, um, you know, those of you, there are some of you here who follow, uh, follow football. And um, one thing you'll know, probably basketball or baseball or anything, is this. What a referee does not see, he will not call, and there is nothing. Nothing you can do about it. New Orleans learned that the hard way as they were going to win the the winning score and the referee did not see that, um, uh, that foul. And you can throw as much tantrums as you want. You can do lawsuits that I hear about people are trying to do. But the game is over and nothing can be done about it. There is no one on that field who can mediate between a player or a coach and the referee. The referee has that final word. Now, our passage is going to take that same principle, but to a much more serious level. It's answering the question, who will, who can mediate for the sins that we commit before God? Now, our text here presents for us, and, and I invite you if you, If you don't have a Bible and you want to use the church Bibles, by the way, you'll find it on page 192. And um, although you'll notice, too, as I'm reading Scripture, it will be a little different from the church Bibles. I'm just using a different translation, the English Standard Version, but they're both fine. But let me note here, what our text is going to do here is it's going to present for us basically three different types of people or parties. There's going to be the good, there's going to be the bad, and then there's going to be someone who, the best way to describe it, is, is impotent, without power. And what the author does is you'll he, see how he's going to arrange the passage so clearly, the story so clearly, that it's obvious that he's setting up these contrasts. I'm actually going to start off with, a, with the verse before, that, what I have listed here in Verse 11. And it reads this way, then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli, the priest. We know that that boy was the boy Samuel. God had granted to, to Hannah after her prayers, and um, he was given by his parents. Hannah had dedicated Samuel to serve in the, uh, what was at that time, the, the tabernacle as the servant of Eli. So, from his time as a toddler, he is dedicated to the service of the the tabernacle, what will someday become the temple, and he will faithfully minister to the Lord. Now comes the first contrast with the bad. Let me begin reading in verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice the priest servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot all that the fork brought up the priest would take for himself this is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there First of all, just to note, Eli's the high priest, his sons are priests. Shiloh is where the the tent, that tabernacle, is located. So, moreover, in verse 15, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, let them burn the fat first and then take as much as you wish, he would say, no, you must give it now. And if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Okay, now we're, we're presented two scenarios here, all related to the, the sacrificial offerings here. In verses 13 and 14 is what takes place actually after the offering. The, these two wicked sons of Eli, they're priests. We'll learn later that their names are Hophni and Phineas. And what they are doing are sinning directly. What the author wants you to know is see how they're sinning against their fellow man. You see, once you had come, let's say you came and you made an offering on the altar, then you and your family... You were actually to eat the meat that you offered up. And you were directed by the law to boil it. And actually, while you were there, someplace nearby, you, you have a meal with them. A portion was allotted by law to the priests. Namely, it was a, a thigh and the breast. And that's what they would have to take home with them. Well, what's happening is that these two priests were sending their servants Rather than more like they're like henchmen to go and and while you're boiling your meat, they'd go in with this big prong here and and they're fishing around for the choicest pieces of meat. So they're violating the law. They are depriving the offer those who've been offering the food their due food. Indeed, what they were even obligated to eat before the law. Now in the second scenario the author would have us understand is even worse. It's in verses 15 and 16. This actually happens before the offering. There was one constant. If you read through the book of Leviticus, which is a a challenge to do, but you'll notice one thing about all the offerings when they're offering an animal. The fat of the animal was to be burned on the altar itself. That's one thing you don't eat. And it was stated more than once in the law that this particular part of the animal, the fam, was a food offering that was a pleasing aroma to the Lord. In other words, the family gets one part, the Lord, in a sense, gets another part. Well, what's happening is here, you've gone, you've had the animal killed, you're it's being divided up here and, and so on. And these men, again were coming in and they were saying, Look, we want our food. We want the food now. And so well, wait a minute. Right in the middle of an offering, the fat's supposed to be separated, it's supposed to be offered to the Lord, and they say, You give it now, or we're we going to take it away from you by force. So here you have a sin not only against the offerer, it's a sin directly Against the Lord, against God. Now, so these priests were exactly as was described of them. They were worthless, definitely worthless as priests, and they were those who did not know the Lord. They they were clearly those who did not fear God. All right, now we go back to the author's contrast, which is to go back to Samuel and his family verse 18 Samuel was ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and saying may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord so then they would return to their home Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. So we go back to the, to the good person here of Samuel, who is continuing to faithfully minister in that tabernacle before the Lord. And when it says here that this phrase that he, Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord, it doesn't just mean that, well, he's there in the tabernacle. But it's speaking of how he is growing. It, it's speaking of his godly character. And then with that, we're given this beautiful picture of a loving family. They come every year. His mother makes for him uh, a garment uh, that one ought to be wearing for serving in the tabernacle. God has blessed Hannah and Elkanah, has given them more children. So, it's, it's a family that is, is blessed by God, and it is characterized by love. Okay. Now, let's go back to that other family of Eli and his sons. Verse 22. Now, Eli was very, was very old. This is the scripture that you just heard read. And he kept hearing that all that his sons were doing to all Israel... And I understand that when you're saying doing it to all Israel. All Israel has to come there to Shiloh to, to present their offerings. They can't do it anywhere else. So their sins are affecting all, literally all of Israel. And how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading about. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So we see, first of all, Elkanah he has words of blessings for Elkanah and for um, and for his family. Eli blesses them, but he only has words of rebuke for his own sons, and rightly so. Correct? I mean, he he. He adds something else to add on to that wickedness, in sacrilege that we have already seen. These men are laying with women who have been dedicated to serve at the, at the tabernacle. I don't know whether it's there, whether it's there by whatever. It's probably by violence or whatever, and they are committing this great sacrilege. And understandably so, because people are coming, they' seeing what is happening. And they're going out, and they are spreading the word abroad. So we've had good, bad, good, bad. Let's go back to the good. Verse 26. "And now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with men. Finally, the author is very explicit. He's kind of been implying how good Samuel was. Now he says it directly. Samuel is only getting better and better. Eli's sons are only getting worse. And as Eli, and by the way, now this is where that impotent third party comes in. Eli is unable to do anything about it. All he can do is just kind of wag his finger at them. And so, this wickedness in the house of the Lord, it cannot continue. And that's what the verses to the end of the chapter, they present a prophet who comes and he foretells of the imminent judgment about to take place against Eli's house. He says that the Lord is going to put an end to the family of Eli serving as priest in that temple. And, and let me note here about Eli, and indeed it brings that out in the passage. You know, okay, you know Eli, it's understandable that you, your sons have grown. You know, you cannot stop them from being wicked people. But Eli is also, by the way, the high priest. And what he could do was remove them from the service in the tabernacle. And that is what he did not do. And that's why judgment is brought against him. And so the judgment is that the Lord will place another priest from Aaron's line. He'll move out that family and bring in another family from Aaron's, as, who are descendants of Aaron, to carry out that priestly role. And then in the next chapter, in the very next verse, by the way, it's going to take us back to Samuel who is faithfully serving the Lord. Now, I want to bring out three lessons that we can take away from this passage. And the first is this. The sovereign God, the sovereign Lord Yahweh, he will provide and he will preserve a righteous, faithful remnant, as well as visit judgment on the wicked. It seems, I think, this is, this is the message of the author by, by juxtaposing Samuel, the good, the righteous, with the wicked sons. God is quietly preserving Samuel and others who are righteous. He is developing his righteous servant. who's going to become the next judge. while well, he's letting the wicked priests basically hang themselves for the day of judgment. After Eli rebukes his son, back there in verse 25 we're told this, that they would not listen to their father. And then note what's added to that. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now here's the point being made, is that it is the will of the Lord for them to punish their guilt. And not to provide the repentance that they needed to make to being delivered. God has not given them hardened hearts. He's simply refusing to soften those hearts. He's doing what is described in Romans 1, where, it's, where it speaks of God giving up those who were intent not to acknowledge God, who, say, who, who will not acknowledge that exists, even though he's clearly there. And remember what it is about these sons? What was said of them? They did not know the Lord. They refused to know the Lord. So God has decided that judgment, not mercy, will be shown to them. You know, the days of Israel were very dark at that time. And it seemed like matters were only going to continue to deteriorate into chaos. But what's being made clear here? Even so, God was at work. God was at work in planning the judgment that was going to take place. He was at work in planning the restoration for Israel to be his true nation. And so a lesson for us is that we have that same God. He is the sovereign Lord who is working out his purposes for his kingdom, whether or not we can see that. You know, it's clear, isn't it, that times are changing. Okay. And we are understandably worried about the state of the church as, as attacks, just verbal attacks, even legal attacks, are coming against our values and our faith. I received an email a few weeks ago from someone I didn't know, he'd come across my message on, on common grace, which one of the things it teaches is how God restrains sins. And one of the ways in which God restrains sins is he uses governments for that purpose and, and the laws. And he quoted that. And then he bemoaned, well, our government now are changing those laws. And, and now all what, what do we have to hope for Well, he misses the whole point. Governments do only what God allows them to do. And it is always whatever it is to meet God's purposes. And we've seen in Scripture how again and again God will use ungodly nations, ungodly governments to discipline his people. But for their good, for the purifying of their faith. And he furthermore, he will preserve a faithful remnant. There will always be that remnant there who will see that the light of the gospel is not extinguished. To see that the work of his kingdom will carry on. What's being made clear here, it is God. It is God alone who determines when, and where that light of the gospel, that work of the kingdom will flourish, and when at times it will be dimmed. But it is God who is in control. He will bring judgment against the wicked at the time of his choosing. Just as he will bring discipline of his own people at his timing. Like the spiritual says He's got the whole world. The whole world in his hands. So one lesson here to learn, a very important lesson, is God is in control however much we may see or not see. Second lesson about is where our hope is to be found. In verse thirty five, the the prophet's going to say, speak of, of this righteous priest. And God's going to raise up. is going to take the place of uh, Eli's family. And he, he says of this priest that he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. That Hebrew word for anointed is Messiah. And whenever it is used in the Old Testament, like it's used here when it's just by itself and just a noun, it almost all the time refers to the king. And as we go along in Scripture, more and more the people are going to take that concept and look for the, the great king, the Messiah, to come. And we're going to develop this idea more as we go further along in First in Samuel. But the one thing to note is that it's in this chapter that the word first appears in this way. And it speaks of a, a king, of an anointed to come. Although it's actually not in that verse that I just read to you that it first appears. You already heard it. It was last week at the end of Hannah's uh, prayer. Let me read it. It's in chapter 2, verse 10. She writes, The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king. He will and exalt the horn of his anointing. The era of the judges is coming to an end. The era of the kings is soon to take place. Samuel will be the last judge. He will anoint the first king, and for that matter, the second king. Samuel will anoint the anointed, the messiah. And it is Hannah, who is the first person to to actually put this out in a a thought to articulate the hope of the anointing of the Messiah to come. And she she speaks, and what the people of that time were, were speaking, is that one who would come, who would exercise righteous judgment, and whenever the people are in danger, bring them in deliverance. And again, that righteous priest to come, whom the Lord will raise up, he's going to serve before such a king. That was the idea behind these kings. So the hope of Israel from now on will lie in the anointed, the king to come. But that's our hope too. It is the same hope for the church And the spiritual, we who are the spiritual descendants of Abraham, our hope lies in the anointed, the king, the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The only difference is they look forward to that king to come, and he was going to come, and he was going to deliver them from oppression, he was going to establish a righteous kingdom. We look back to that king, that Messiah who has come who has already won that deliverance for us from the oppression of sin, who has brought us into the kingdom of God. But we both, even now, are still looking to the future for that same king to return, in which he will then consummate his kingdom, the new heaven, the new earth, where we will all be together with him forever see their storing their hope is our storing and our hope and it all centers around the same Messiah the same anointed the Lord Jesus Christ so God is the sovereign God he is at work he's in control he has sent the anointed the one who will exercise a true salvation and then there's one other thing to bring out, and it's the reason why I chose that particular passage, uh, to, to be read. It's in, found in verse 25. The key verse, I think, of the whole text is found there. Remember, Eli is rebuking his wayward sons, and he tells them this. He says, if someone sins against a man, well, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, against Yahweh, who can intercede for him? Now, it's the same word. That word translated mediate and one, intercede, is the exact same Hebrew word. And what Eli is saying here is basically this. When there's a dispute between individuals, you still have God. He's the great judge. He can determine who's in the right he can be the one who comes to one's aid. But if the dispute is with God, well, who, who can judge between those two? And if God is against you, what hope do you have? Who can mediate to resolve that kind of conflict? And that makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, God is God. He has no weak one. I mean, much less does He have anyone who's over him to determine who's right or wrong there's not even anyone who can counsel him and so when we have sinned against God what hope do we have to avoid our sentence, to avoid judgment that was Eli's point but Eli I don't know, he forgot something One thing he didn't remember was his history. If he had remembered his history, and if he had remembered, for that matter, his own role was what it was supposed to be, he would have realized, well, actually there can be a mediator. Remember Abraham? You know, you had these angels that were going to go to Sodom, destroy Sodom. What does Abraham do? He intercedes. He mediates. He prays. He gets God to whittle it down. You know, maybe you can only find ten people. And God agrees. That's mediation. That's interceding. Or Moses. People are, you know, going back to idol worship. God says, okay, that's it. I'm wiping them out. I've had enough of this. Moses intercedes. He prays for them. He pleads for them. And God relents. So that, whether or not he remembered history, Eli, don't you know what your job responsibility is? To be a priest was to be a mediator between God and his people. That's why the people they are going all over here to, to Shiloh, where the tabernacle is, where the, the priests are, offering their animals over, and it's the priests who are doing that work of making the offering. And whether people bring it or not, every day the priests are sacrificing animals on behalf of the sins of their people, and indeed, there was one day out of the year, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest, when Eli, apparently was that high priest, entered into, and he was the only one who could, the Holy of Holies as mediator to make atonement for the sins of the of the nation. And look, like Eli is right. No one can judge between God and man. But one can intercede. One can speak on behalf of another. It's interesting when I, I was looking up that, that word, to say, okay, you know, let's see where it says judge and mediate and intercede. You know how it's mostly translated in our Bibles? Pray. I will pray to God. Well, yes, anyone can do that. So, one who is mediating between God and man is praying to God to show mercy, to, to provide forgiveness on behalf of the offender. But a priest is not only praying, he also Taking those sacrifices. He is offering up sacrifices to make atonement. You can see where I'm going, can't you? Who is our great mediator? Who is our both great priest and great king? Who has entered into that true heavenly holy of holies? With blood of the one sufficient sacrifice for our sins. Who is it that is still up there who continually is interceding for us, even now at the right hand of, of God the Father? And by the way, we need to make one thing clear there, there are no wrongs reserved only for neighbor against neighbor. So when Eli is saying, well, you know, he's sinic, man sins against man, you still got God. When man sins against man, he is sinning against God. All our acts against our fellow human beings are sins against God. All offenses, all of our failures, all of our transgressions bring us under God's judgment. And we have no hope for mercy without our advocate, without our mediator, our Lord Jesus Christ who we are told mediated a new covenant for us through his sacrifice on the cross. That mediator claims us for his own. And all who believe in him, who, who come to him, without him there is no hope, with him is all assurance. That whenever we appear before the throne of God, particularly on that end day when we appear before the throne of God, we will find, we'll find mercy, grace. If you've never turned to your Lord, would you not believe? Put your trust in Him now. And to all of us, remember this. However dark the times may appear to you, whatever happens in our own country, However chaotic the world may seem around you, sovereign God is in control. He is at work. And know this. Remember, he has already sent his anointed to win victory for you. And that victory can never be taken away. And if you claim him as your Lord and Savior, know that he is your mediator. He's your intercessor. He is your surety before the throne of God. We give you praise, our God, for our Lord Jesus Christ. He and he alone can mediate between us and God. And he has done so once and for all and he continues to pray and to intercede for us. And We thank you. Thank you for this assurance, this surety that we have. May we ever put our trust, our hope in him. In Christ's name, amen.